Well, it's good to be here this evening. Good to see each one. I know of three people personally that can't be here tonight. One was sick, and um, I was trying to help Brother Wesley with his patio, and he tried to cut one of his fingers off with his saws all this afternoon. So <laughs> I tried to tell him, you don't have to show. You know I'm speaking, but I guess they told him it was a good thing that he had the metal cutting blade in there rather than the wood cutting blade because it would have went to the bone and into the bone probably. I said, yeah, that's what I was thinking. He had five stitches and a tetanus shot, so he said he'd be fine. He said his pride was hurt more than anything else. That's just part of Murphy's Law. Um, Let's see. What all do we have tonight? I've got... A lot of stuff here. I guess starting Sunday morning, we go back to our regular services in all forms and fashions. I don't know of anything different. Uh, I don't know if there'll be a Bible study tomorrow night or not. I did not hear about that. So I don't have a... I know a good part of the group is gone, so... But I don't, I don't know. Pastor didn't say anything to me about that, so just, I don't know. Did they say anything to you, Brother Gary? I don't, I don't know either. But, um, this is, other than possibly tomorrow night, this is our last service of the year. Um, so that kind of pulled me two different directions. But with uh, so many being out, I think I'll go the direction I. Plan to go originally, and we'll just go ahead and talk. Um, we're getting into an area in the Old Testament that uh, the next three books, and, and I'm sure most of you are aware of the books of the Bible, but it's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are my three favorite books of the Old Testament. Now, I love them all, but those are my three favorite. They're all totally interrelated and totally separate as well. So, and fortunately uh, for y'all and for me, <laughs> we have others that are helping on Wednesday night now, so I'm not going to be speaking on her except maybe once a month or something like that. So it's going to take a lot longer to get through these, and so I'll just have to try to remind everybody when we get back there. But um, we will be talking about these three books over the next three uh, periods of time that I'll be speaking and like I say, they're, they're very much connected. Esther is really, in a sense, only connected in that the book of Esther, chronologically speaking, falls in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. It happens during that same time frame. Um, most of the details in the book of Esther are totally different than most of the other books of the Bible, technically. But it's a very important book and it has some very important things. There are some interesting contrasts in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah to me that I'll, I'll bring out as we go along. I'll bring out Ezra's side this evening, and then we'll talk about Nehemiah's uh, later. And to me, it, it answers some questions that I've often had, and especially in the day and age that we live in, um, it helps me to understand a little bit more and make me a little bit more comfortable with some of the decisions that churches and missionaries make because there's both sides of the coin in these two books. So there's so much there. 
Um, we're going to get as far as we can tonight, and we may have to overlap some of it. We'll just do uh, whatever, whatever we can, whatever we have to. There's two other things um, about the book of Ezra that are very um, important as far as what's contained because two of the other books of the Bible are mentioned and actually happen at the same time that um, Ezra is taking place, Ezra and Nehemiah. And that is, um, of course, I can't find the page right now and don't have it, but it's um, Haggai and Zechariah. Yeah, I believe. I'll probably run across that verse before we get through. But those two men had a major part in what happened in the book of Ezra and ultimately carrying over into uh, the book of Nehemiah. So there's four or five books of the Bible all here together, um, actually. And yet, again, each one tells a story. Each author that God chose, uh, used in these situations and chose to use very different types of men, uh, very different attitudes and thinkings. And, and so we see some of those, I'll use the term peculiarities, although it's just the way that those men were. And there's nothing wrong with that because it's the same thing here. Matt's standing up here tonight and he's talking URL codes and beta testing and, and I, something else he mentioned. And I'm going, he might as well speak, be speaking Russian to me because it means nothing to me. But probably if I started saying some of the things that I do in construction, he'd probably be saying he must be speaking German or something. Because, you know, it's just we don't all know the same things. And that's great. Of course, I'll have to ask him after church what those things mean so that I'll know more. But uh, it's just it's the way it is. And that's the way these men were. In the book of Ezra, there are, well, chapters two, if you want to, we'll just jump in the middle there. Uh, and get started in chapter 2 and primarily chapter 2, I guess it is. This is, this is a, a major event that's taking place. This is the end of the exile. The 70 years that they've been in Babylon is, is ending. And the first group of refugees after 70 years... So, you know, I mean, think about that. My mom is almost 90, and I have a granddaughter that's um, just about 20, a little older than 20. But there's that 70-year span. So you can understand what kind of generational situation we have. You're going to have people that were young when they went to Babylon, and some of them are going to make that trip back. Now, as best I can see from looking at several maps and, and sources, in both the cases, one case will be mentioned in Ezra and one will be uh, in Nehemiah. That trip from Babylon back to the homeland took about three and a half months or so. It's a pretty good distance, but of course they walked. They didn't have trains, airplanes, or buses. So it was a big deal, and they would have had to have basically pace themselves to the slowest people unless they had some way of transporting them. Uh, and they might have had some wagons and mules, horses, whatever the case may be. Some of that's, we, there's some information and some nobody seems to talk a whole lot about. But it was a big deal. Now, the, the genealogies mentioned here in chapter 2, this is a group that covers about 50,000 people. 
which that seems like a lot of people, but there were over 2 million Jews estimated to be alive at the time. And so 50,000 is a mighty small number. And that was the group that wanted to go back. They wanted to go back home. Now later, uh, with, uh, in the second group, there's going to be two to 3,000. They're very small and in some ways you might say elite group, but it's really not. But it's a specific group because it was for the temple worship. And Ezra made sure when he went that he took a, a, a specific group, as many as they could gather together, that wanted to go home. Most of them didn't go home. Here's, here's one of those was kind of to me, I mean, I should have realized, but sometimes I miss the main points. Uh, I realize that I'm kind of slow. After 70 years in Babylon, most of them didn't care about going home. It didn't make any spiritual difference to them. That's the condition of their hearts. They spent 70 years in a foreign country, hundreds of miles, and I'll just use the term hundreds because it was a long distance. And after 70 years, most of them going, hey, we like it here. Things are good. We got a, we got a good job. We got a you know, good place to live. Things are good. Why go home? What are we missing? Thing about Ezra is Ezra was a special person in one sense, in that he actually was a priest of the of the lineage of Aaron. He was a grandson of. I, I'm, I'm having to hurry because there's not a lot of time, but uh, he was a grandson of a very one of the well-known priests. But did he ever serve as a priest in Babylon? There was no temple. They had no place to worship. So he never got to serve as what he was actually in line to do. Interesting point. Sometimes we don't get to serve in what we may feel God has called us to do because of situations and circumstances. But do we give up wanting to do what God's called us to do? Certainly we hope not. Ezra never did. And that was the, that was the whole purpose of this first migration and then the, specifically the second migration when Ezra went about 13, no, about six or seven years later, he took those 2,000. The purpose of Ezra's, the book of Ezra and, this, and his ministry was the rebuilding of the temple. That's, that's the basic line, bottom line, the returning of the remnant from Babylon. And God used this heathen king because when Ezra came back, he sent all the things of the temple back with him. They had, for, for 70 years, all those golden basins and all those things, um, bowls and spoons and everything that was used in temple worship, those had been kept in Babylon. And he sent them back and he said, now when you get back there and you set that up, y'all pray for me. I thought that was very interesting. He had a reason for that. He thought it was important. Of course, if you study the book of Ezra, you know that there were people that were against that, which there's always people against the spreading of the gospel. <laughs> even, even in today's world with YouTube and Facebook and, and all of that, it, uh, there's always somebody that doesn't like it. And they had that, definitely had that problem with them. And so that, that is what we're looking at in the book of Ezra. Now, one author wrote and said that the theme of Ezra was the return of the remnant. That's a good point from the physical standpoint. He's exactly right. 
But then looking at another author, he said the theme of Ezra is the word of the Lord. And there's the spiritual point of this book. And that was Ezra's thought and theme from the very beginning. In fact, if we go to uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ezra, he says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith the king, Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Amazing statement. But that's what this man was moved by God to do. God can use anybody. And he will use anybody that's willing to be used. Uh, And he used a heathen king. It might not have been a bad king necessarily, but he certainly wasn't a good king. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of funny what Brother Matt and Daniel and I were talking about before services out in the foyer. This one author said, you know, it's amazing. Some people go, wait a minute. What about the United States of America? What, what about their part in, in world religion? And, and the author goes, they really weren't a major factor back then. Well, we didn't exist. But it, people get the idea in America that we're the answer to the world's problems. We're no more the answer to the world's problems than anybody else. Jesus Christ is the only answer to the world's problems. And God will use us if we'll be used. And if not, he'll use somebody else because God's purpose will be fulfilled and his plan will be accomplished. And so it it amazes me sometimes what we think of ourselves and what others think of themselves because we're just all part of God's creation. Chapter 3 and verse 2, after that long genealogy, it says, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And and here we go again. We're going to see this um, about ten times throughout the book of Ezra that he is going to repeat over and over that it's the word of the Lord, the word of the law of Moses, the word of God. And this, of course, is crucial not only to them in their day, they were, they were, uh, I would call them secular at that time, which most Jews today are secular, although there's a group that are extremely religious, but they're religiously wrong. And then there's a group of Christian Jews uh, in the world. Pretty much every country has that same situation. But that's what we see here in Ezra. They were interested in, in rebuilding the temple, uh, a group of them, but for most of them, it still was not like it was the thing. It wasn't that most of them's mindset was, we're going back to worship the Lord. Their mindset was, we need a temple because that's part of what we do. Uh, they, were, they were not, of that 50,000, many of them certainly were not religious. In fact, if you look at the last part of chapter 2, it already started then in that genealogy chapter or verses 61, 2 and 3. Then Ezra's going, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
you guys can't be priests. You, your genealogy isn't provable. Those things were required. But this group wanted to be part of that. They wanted to be part of the religious services, but they weren't qualified because their genealogy had been lost. That was a major thing. That was part of the law, and it was required. And so they didn't qualify, but they were part of that group to start with. So we see many indications that there wasn't, in fact, the chapters go on to show that most of them, it was just a religious thing. How many people in the world today do you ask if they're a Christian or if they're a church person? And most of them will say yes. That doesn't mean they know Christ. It doesn't mean they have anything to do with church. But most of them will claim some religious affiliation. If nothing else, that'll get you to leave them alone. But most everybody claims something because their grandmother or their great-grandmother was something. And so that's, it's, uh, it's sad, but it's always been that way to a great extent. So in chapter 3, they're setting up and they're talking about the law of Moses. We jump to chapter 6 and verses, uh, verse 14. And it says, The elders of the Jews builded and they prospered through the, here we go, these two men that I mentioned earlier, through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, or Ido, and they builded and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So, first of all, Ezra points out that it was according to the commandment of the God of Israel. Ezra says this, repeats it, never gets tired of hearing it, and that's why we should never get tired of hearing whoever stands here to proclaim the word of God, that this is the word of God. We may have heard it a thousand times, but we should never get tired of hearing it because that's what we believe, the word of God. You can get any kind of information you want anywhere on the internet or other places, maybe except Christianity now, but uh, that doesn't mean it's right. But the scriptures are always right. And, you know, I, I, I've been in church since I was four years old. I haven't got tired of hearing the gospel preached yet. Uh, and I'm not going to because that's how I got saved. So that always excites me. And that always excites me that, hey, somebody else may do what I did. They might go, oh, I'm lost. I need to be saved. That's what happens. And so, you know, we don't get tired of that because it's, it's never really old. It's always new and fresh. And so Ezra just keeps on doing this. Verse 18 of chapter uh, 6. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which is at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Ezra was going to go right by every jot and every tittle of the scripture. He wasn't going to vary one little bit. Now, there's, I'm going to go ahead and stop and throw this in. It's, uh, it's free, <laughs> but uh, it's really pertinent. And I think it's very important and it's something that ought to be something in our minds. This one author said, we've not had a real revival, and he's from America, in our day. He said, Dwight L. Moody, which that's been quite a while ago, made this statement, and he saw a revival. The next revival will be a revival of Bible study. 
Those who have tried to whip up revivals by organization, by methods, by gimmicks, have failed. Revival comes when people come back to the Word of God. And that's no truer statement's ever been said. Uh, that's, that's how it can happen, how it will happen, is when people get serious about the Word of God. Nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else will happen or can happen until that does happen. Uh, if we want to see a revival in America, we've got to come back to the Word of God. Nothing else that will save, nothing else that gives us hope, nothing else that shows us eternity. It's only through the Word of God. And, uh, yeah, how, how many of those uh, gimmicks and organizations and methods have we seen tried and fail over and over? A couple of other things about Ezra before we move on. And, and this I was not aware of, never heard anybody mention. But there seems to be a consensus that Ezra wrote Psalms 119. Well, that's an interesting thought. And in my and, and this is from different sources, but in, in the chronological Bible that I do my daily Bible reading in, I noticed that Psalms 119 was in the middle of the book of Ezra. And I wondered at that at the time, but a lot, of the, a lot of the verses do have an application to what was going on, the return of the remnant, the rebuilding of the temple. But I never heard anybody say that. That's just the way that the guy that put the King James Bible into chronological order as best he could determine, uh, that's where he put it. But then I've, I come across these, so uh, that's, an, that's an interesting thing. He also uh, is considered to maybe have written... Uh, well, he, he did write First and Second Chronicles. And uh, so he, he obviously did write at least three and possibly, well, three books and then Psalms 119. But, but that's, uh, that's interesting and I can't prove that, not trying to, just pointing it out. Now, chapter six, chapters one through six was the return of the first 50,000 and then rebuilding the temple in its form, nothing like Solomon's temple. Way smaller, way less fancy, but it was a temple. Uh, I'm sure it was still nice. But then chapter 7 changes, and there's almost a 50-year span or more between chapter 6 of Ezra and chapter 7. Then we see Ezra by now is going to be an old guy. That's all there is to it. And he ministry begins per se just before um, or yeah, just at, as chapter seven starts after that 50 years, they reinstitute the Passover that's restored. And then things really begin to happen in chapter seven, verse 10. It says Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Here was a man that should have been a priest in, in the Jewish religion already. But because they were in a foreign land and no temple, he was not serving as a priest. The Bible says he's a ready scribe. So he was doing the next best thing to that in where he lived. 
And that was, he was copying the scriptures and he was handing those out and he was making sure that if there were any questions about what this or that said, he could answer it. He was used mightily with the scriptures, but not in the, I'll use the term position. I, I don't really like that, but that's the word that comes to mind best to serve there. And till he got back home, the temple was built, restored, and now he's serving as the priest there. And he said his heart was toward that. Our hearts should be toward the learning, the study, and the spreading of the word of God. He sought with his whole heart to seek the law of the Lord. That's a, probably the key verse in the book of Ezra because that's what his mind was on and that's what he was focused on. Then in um, chapter or verse 14 of chapter 7. It says, For as much as thou art sin of the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thy hand. So that's, that was his desire, and that's what his job was, and that's what he was going to do. He was going to seek and to proclaim and do his very best to get the temple worship to be just exactly as God wanted it to be. Chapter 9, verse 4, it says, And then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrificed. Uh, we might in today's world use the term his mind was blown or he was freaked out. I don't know. He was just, he was blown away. It was just overwhelming. They were assembled unto me, everyone that trembled. This wasn't nearly 50,000 people or 52,000 people by this time. But there was a group that were serious. And they realized, this group realized, this is why we spent 70 years in Babylon. Of all the sin and all the things that we've done against the word of God. And they were, he was astonished and he was seeking to know what God wanted him to do. And in verse 5 of their chapter 9, he said, And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord God, my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed to blush, to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up into the heavens. That is an amazing statement when you think about the wording there. In other words, we talk about being underwater sometimes and things. That's, where, that's what his, his way of pushing, putting it out there was, I'm, I'm over my head. And then he said, our trespasses have grown up into the heavens. In other words, our sins stacked up so bad that it's all the way up into the clouds. And he wasn't wrong. Uh, and they acknowledge that. Let's go to chapter 10, verse 3. And now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and to those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Now here was where they had intermarried with uh, heathen nations and, 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 they, and Ezra said, this has got to stop. And the, and the ones that trembled 
at the law of the Lord all said, okay, we'll fix, we'll fix this problem. We'll do what we need to do. It's a big statement. You've lived 20 years I've, or whatever. I've, you know, I've lived 40 years in, in business or whatever. And all of a sudden I'm going, okay, hey, this was wrong. I need to fix this. Are we willing to step up and fix the things that may have been or are wrong in our lives? It's a big, it's a big step. But that's what God expects of us is to do what, he's, what his word says. And then verse five, then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to his word and they swear. You know, that's a, to me, that's an, an interesting verse. It's 100% true. And I know they lived under the law and they were coming back from the exile. And, and, but you know, there's not much said about it anymore. To me, it's still a, a big thing. Used to, and, and I very possibly was here, I, I just don't remember, I wasn't here that much in the years gone by, but used to in most independent Baptist churches, somewhere on one of these walls, there was the, uh, the church covenant, it, the printed church covenant. And we understood that when we joined a church, that we were to abide by that church covenant. Now, the church covenant, you can't find it. You know, it's not in the book of Hezekiah, chapter 17. You understand I'm kidding. There's no book of Hezekiah. But anyway, but all of those principles, you know, for the people in real Linda sometimes, uh, um, all of the principles are there. And many of the statements are there, black and white in the scripture. But they were condensed Oh, I want to say in 1617 on the East Coast in one of the Baptist churches back there. And it became known as the Church Covenant. And it is kind of like exactly what's here, only in about six paragraphs. What we'll do, we'll, we'll do what the Bible says that we should do as a member. We'll volunteer to do, you know, whatever we need to do and whatever God calls us to do. If we decide that we need to be in another church, we will as soon as possible join that church and, and follow. You know, it's all those things that are laid out. Nobody talks about those things anymore. We don't talk about responsibility too much. But we have a great responsibility because this is the Lord's church and we're privileged to be a part of it. And, and that's what Ezra's pointing out here. Hey, this is the law of the Lord. This is his temple. What are y'all going to do? And they go, okay, we swear. Um, un- unfortunately, it didn't last all that long for the children of Israel. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times it doesn't last all that long for us. But that, to me, that's one of the most powerful verses in, in that part of the, in, in that book. And there's way so much more that I'd hope to talk about this evening, but we just completely run out of time. But I do want to look at eight. 21 in closing, because this is the key to a contrast, which we've done that a lot in the early books, but most of them were contrast Old Testaments and New. This is a contrast old to old. In verse 21 of chapter 8, it says, And then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, or however you want to pronounce it, with, we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones, and for all our substance. So this, this is a wonderful thing. He said, I, I'm proclaiming a fast. We're going to stop. We're going to deny ourselves, and we're going to pray. 
and ask God to give us direction, to protect us, uh, all of our belongings, our families. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. But then in verse 22, he says, For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon us, upon, excuse me, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. And this lasted for three days. And then he set up, uh, he split up all those very expensive items among different groups of people, and they were responsible uh, to turn those in once they got there. But they distributed that expensive stuff, obviously, in case there was an attack, that they might not lose everything. Uh, and it also was showing responsibility there. But what, I, what I, my main focus there was verse 22, because Ezra says, we're going back, but we're not having the government's help. We don't want the government's help here. Nehemiah is going to flip that completely. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And for years, I've, I have wondered and thought about how much, how much should we have the government involved or should we ask for government help or, or anything like this? And I, I'm not in favor of 99% of it. I'll put that personally. But obviously, these two men thought completely different about it in their ministries and the things they were doing for the Lord. So there is a place for it obviously, or Nehemiah would never have done it. He would have followed Ezra's example and go, nah, we don't want to do that. But that's not what happened. Now, Nehemiah, I mean, Ezra, oh, I know I would forget. I forget what his job was in the kingdom. Uh, but he had a job. Nehemiah had a job in the kingdom. Um, so they were both known well of the government and but they chose to go different routes. And so that to me is significant. And we have to pray and we have to look at what God would have us to do and how far we should extend or ask for or open ourselves up to things involving the government in ministry. But uh, it, it's definitely in the scripture and it's an interesting subject to me and an interesting study. Well, Brother Matt, I'm going to turn it over to you. And I'm sorry I took five more extra minutes. All right. Well, of course, there's, as you look around, you can tell that there's plenty of people who need prayer. 